You are now listening to the January 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's broadcast includes Christianese 101, Grace Upon Grace, and The Sex Spiral. We will begin with a praise song and follow with our program, Christianese 101. My name is Don Chung, and I am your host for the Christianese 101 program series. This program is to focus on a word each week that is commonly used in churches, but is not so commonly used in the world. 
it may have an unfamiliar meaning to new Christians, or to people who've been Christians all their lives but never knew the true meaning of these words. Last week, we discussed the word "amen" that is frequently used in churches. Today, we selected a word that is used just as much. It is the word "hallelujah." Hallelujah and "amen" are used in the secular world too. But non-Christians do not use the term in the correct context, and that makes me sad, knowing it is indeed mostly used in the context to mock Christianity nowadays. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word used by the Jews throughout the Old Testament. Hallelujah means praise, as the imperative word Hallel in Hebrew means you praise. Yah is a shortened version of Yahweh, meaning God. In simple translation, it means you praise Yahweh, or praise God. Actually, Hallelujah is not just a word; it is a phrase. Hallelujah, praise Yah, God. It is a commanding phrase. However. Hallelujah has a much deeper and richer meaning than just to be translated as "praise God." That is why many countries around the world agreed to use the original term and not translate it into their own language, just like the word "Amen" that we discussed last week. When we say "Hallelujah," we should think about three meanings when using the word. When shouting "Hallelujah." We should think about why we should praise Yahweh. First, God freed us from living as slaves in sin. He has delivered us from our sin. That is why we praise God wholeheartedly. Second, we thank and praise God for continuously protecting us from Satan's plan to fail us. Without God's help, there is no way we can win that battle alone. Third and lastly, we thank and praise God for His grace, for He has chosen us who are sinners and had turned away from Him, and forgave that sin by sacrificing His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Of course, there are countless reasons why we should praise God, just as the lyrics in a worship song says, "Even if we turn the sky into a scroll and the ocean into ink." We cannot record all of His enormous love. That is why the word "Hallelujah" is not translated and is used in its original form. Did you know that there is actually a word besides "Hallelujah" that sounds very similar? The word is "Alleluia." If "Hallelujah" means "Praise God," then are you curious as to what "Alleluia" means? Actually, these two words have the same meaning. Hallelujah is Hebrew and Alleluia is Greek. In Greek, there are no H or H sound, so they use it as the closest sounding one, which is A or A. That is how Hallelujah became Alleluia and is pronounced the way it is, because Protestantism was influenced by the Puritans. They often used Hallelujah. Catholics were influenced by Rome and Greek, and often used Alleluia. Many people start out their prayer by saying Hallelujah, Father, when shouting Hallelujah while praying or praising. Let's say it wholeheartedly, giving everything we've got to God, as we praise the One who saved us and have called us His children. I hope that we will lift up our voices and praise Him throughout this week, shouting "Hallelujah!" See you next time. Your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain firm beneath my feet. Your love is a mystery, 
how you gently lift me when I am surrounded. Your love carries me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me sing and hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me sing. Love is surprising, I can feel it rising All the joy that's growing deep inside of me And every time I see you, all your goodness shines through I can feel this God song rising up in me Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Well, it is so good to be with you today as we continue our lesson on biblical sexuality. This material is from uh, a brand new book, that will be released this summer. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And uh, yes, my friends, you can be both. You can be both forgiven and free. Well, in today's lesson, we're going to discuss the mystery of marriage, and we're also going to discuss sexual sin. Is uh, For example, is pornography really a sin? Well, 
God gives us a template for sexuality and marriage and intimacy. So let's find out what that is. I've been married three times. I'm embarrassed of my past. I'm ashamed of it. I'm a liar and I'm a coward. I stood at the altar two times and lied. My first marriage was out of ignorance and my second was out of rebellion. And to have to tell my story over and over and over again about what a lunatic I was and what a sinner I was. It's humiliating to say the least, right? But that's the whole reason that I'm teaching you guys today. It's to teach you about the tornado that's on the front, the front cover of your workbooks. That sexual sin will destroy everything in your life. It must destroy everything in your life. Throughout all of Scripture, God calls adultery, idolatry. And He calls idolatry, adultery. They're synonymous. It means that we're unfaithful in both aspects, that we're worshiping a false god. The great news is that while we're unfaithful, God is not. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. This is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, He reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So that is a glimpse into the future of a marriage that's getting ready to happen. At the end of this world, there will be a marriage. Turn to Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This is the one that you highlight right here. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, God is telling us that Jesus Christ is the groom. The church is His bride. That Christ's marriage to the church sets the standard for all of our marriages. And the reason for that is because Christ is the perfect groom, right? He's married to the imperfect bride. That's us. Therefore, our physical marriage, our marriage right now, is supposed to reflect the heavenly marriage. We're supposed to be reflecting and drawing people close to us, our marriage is. So people go, what's different about you guys? Because it is the, uh, the spiritual reality of the heavenly marriage, Christ and the church. It's a mystery. So let's consider marriage from Satan's perspective. If Satan hates Jesus Christ, and he does, right? That means that he hates marriage. So wouldn't it make sense that Satan would do everything that he can to destroy earthly marriages? So one of the most popular questions that I get is whether or not a certain behavior is a sin. Is pornography really a sin? I have found that the best way to answer that is to go back to the biblical text of Genesis 2.24. God gives us a template for what marriage is. And marriage also means sexuality because they're two sides of the same coin. You've got marriage and you've got sex and you've got marriage. God's saying you can't take those apart. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 19, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. The religious leaders of the day trying to trick Jesus once again about a question about divorce. Jesus says, uh, hey man, haven't you guys read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he, he said, this, is why, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they're no longer two but one, let no one split, split apart what God has joined. So instead of answering a specific question about divorce, Jesus says, I want to answer this question for all of humanity. What God has created, let no one take away. 
he's saying Jesus is saying that ultimately no one should ever interfere uh, with sexual relations between one man and one woman. Matthew 19, verse 8, they keep pressing him. Why did Moses allow, a, uh, allow us to divorce? And Jesus says, well, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. So ultimately, we've strayed from God's original design for sexuality because of our hard heart, because of our rebellion. We wanted to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it, how we wanted to do it. So much so, that's what they were doing thousands of years ago. Their hearts were so hard that they said, well, you know what? We got to change the law. Moses, I'm demanding a divorce from this woman because I don't want to change. She's driving me nuts. It's, it's, she, she's, not, she's not serving my needs. She's not doing what I want. What'd they do? They wore him down. Hmm. Not much has changed. We're making new laws. We're doing the same thing. We're making concessions here in this country as well. All this bathroom stuff. Marriage laws, we're doing the same exact thing. See, morality never changed. For whatever reason, I think that we think that we're better than the people in the Old Testament because we've got iPhones. Yeah, has morality changed? That's right. Sin, here's a better answer. Sin hasn't changed, right? Yeah, I think about it. Sodom and Gomorrah was probably far worse than yeah. we have today. So, if anything, we got better for a while. Think about the church in Corinth. You guys remember that that lesson? How many temple prostitutes did they? It was a whole bunch. Temple prostitutes at the city of Corinth. That's how they worshipped. They went and, and and had sex out in the open because of the fertility gods. All right. So, for example, when people ask if I think homosexuality is a sin, point them back to Genesis two twenty four. By the way, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what God says on this stuff, right? It doesn't matter what I think. Does that make sense? That's key when you start having these discussions, and it's key as you go through your own journey. It doesn't matter what you think in here that you should be doing. It only matters what he says and whether or not we're actually going to start obeying this stuff. So if it, does homosexuality fit inside of God's structure inside Genesis 2.24? Does pornography, does fornication does bestiality? No. So Genesis 2.24 is the template for all of this stuff. So, on the bottom of your worksheet, there's nothing to fill in because I wanted to go over a couple pages here, but are listed some of the sins that we deal with. So the first part of that sin is the actual definition of the sin, and then there's the biblical view of the sin. So adultery is sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not his or her spouse, right? Well, if Jesus Christ is the groom and we're the bride, there's a biblical, a spiritual view on that, on adultery. And, and adultery, what that does is it miscommunicates that Christ would actually cheat on his church and be intimate with another person. Would Christ do that? Of course not. Divorce. The definition is the legal dismissal of a marriage. The biblical view is that divorce miscommunicates that Christ and the church would be split apart after a certain period of time. Is that going to happen? Of course not. We just saw Revelation 19 just showed us the wedding. Fornication. Sexual intercourse. Sorry, just going back on that, I just wanted to kind of touch, see kind of what, this, what Jesus meant when he was saying kind of, you read verse 8, but then he goes on in verse 9 when he kind of he says, uh, that's not what uh, God wanted in the beginning. He says, I tell you whoever divorces his wife, but it says, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Mm-hmm. So what do you, like, what is, do you think he means necessarily by like, because it sounds like he's given permission to if they're being sexual and immoral. I mean, at the same time, Want to try and work things out too? Absolutely. Something where it's like, if it's like a consistent. Yeah, and and that's one of the most hotly debated verses, right? What is the actual biblical definition of 
a, an out for a Christian. Everybody will point to that verse and go, well, if you've been unfaithful, then that's your out. You can legally, Jesus says you can legally divorce and move on with your life. But is that really what he means? Absolutely. I mean, you got to look at it at face value. But is he saying, I don't want you to try and work it out? Right. Absolutely not. I mean, he, that's what he died for. I mean, think about it. He died for the marriage to stay together. He doesn't want people to get a divorce because some guy had one affair. I think the Greek, it's this idea of porneia is this ongoing sense of indecency in someone's life. It's not like a one-time thing. It's a habitual thing. That's the very thing that we're talking about. It's habitual. It's that I am... I'm telling my wife that I'm going to change, but I just refuse to do it because I'm not obeying. And I'm not working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And by the way, you know, people will point to that verse and go, well, look, you know, my husband verbally abuses me. He spiritually abuses me. But he's never been unfaithful. Well, in Matthew 5, if the guy's never lusted, He's committed adultery in his heart. Does that mean that now you have grounds for divorce? Right? Make no doubt about it. God says he hates divorce. He also hates abuse. He hates sin. So first and foremost, and Jesus wants people to work this stuff out. No doubt. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think it makes sense. I was just kind of trying to kind of realize, like, I mean... Even if you don't necessarily have an affair, the sexual immorality could be necessarily, you know, the habitual sin with, you know, looking at pornography. Oh, absolutely. Pornography is absolutely grounds for, for divorce from a biblical right. standpoint. I was going to say, so in a sense, from saying what, what Jesus was saying and everything, yeah. our wives, you know, biblically have the right to mm-hmm. be able to leave us because of the morality that we've been having. So the question is, are you going to look at other scriptures at what God and Jesus said to where it says, let no one take what God has put together and tear it apart. Unless there's ongoing abuse in the home. The writer of Proverbs is very, very clear. Don't associate with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with someone who's got an anger problem. Or nagging wife. Don't take that out of context. (laughs) The only reason that she's nagging you is because what? I'm a sinner. Anybody else want to finish that? He's on the right track. The only reason that our wives nag us is because I don't look like Jesus. If I look like Jesus, she wouldn't be nagging me. Right? Ouch. Ouch. Fornication. (laughs) Sexual intercourse between two. You've been waiting for that. Sexual intercourse between two unmarried people, the biblical view is that fornication miscommunicates that Christ and the church experience sexual intimacy without commitment. Christ died for commitment. He actually proposes to you on the cross. Homosexuality, sodomy, lesbianism, engaging in in sexual behavior with someone of the same sex... This is a little bit different because the biblical view says that homosexuality miscommunicates that the proper coupling that God intended was Christ and the church, not to Christ and not to churches. And here's the thing with sex. We have to understand that sex is for pleasure, yes. But what else is it for? Creation. God gives us sex to actually, He gives us the ability to create more life. And you can't have that with same-sex marriages, right? Or relationships. And by the way, let me make sure I'm completely clear on this. Let's go back, because as a church, we have not done a good job. Let's go back to the whole Genesis 2.24. If it does not fit into the template, we don't judge that same-sex attraction or homosexuality any different than pornography, fornication, or adultery. Okay? Does that make sense? As church people, we, we, love, we, we love to condemn on that. And I would say when you feel this condemnation because you're better than that, that you just, oh, my sin is just looking at pornography or hiring a hooker or going to the strip club. 
right? It's just that. You guys have told me that in your office, in my office. What are you talking? I just, uh, I've never paid for sex, and I've just. Are you listening to yourself? Masturbation, the stimulation of one's own genitals to the point of orgasm. What's the biblical view of that? That masturbation miscommunicates that Christ finds fulfillment in isolation rather than in exclusive devotion to his bride. Would Christ do that? Of course not. Polygamy, the practice of having more than one spouse at a time, it communicates that Christ has many churches rather than one church. Pornography, the emotional, spiritual, and physical abuse of two or more people performing profane acts of sexuality for the arousal of a viewer or audience. I would like you guys to highlight that definition and make sure you understand what is written there. The emotional, spiritual, and physical abuse of two or more people performing profane acts of sexuality. Why? For entertainment. The biblical view is that it miscommunicates that Christ would derive pleasure from such acts or prefer to view such acts rather than be with his bride. And then lastly, rape. The crime of forcing another person to have sexual intercourse against their will. And the biblical view is that rape miscommunicates that Christ himself would force himself on an unwilling church. Once again, Christ isn't going to make you guys do anything that you don't want to do. He loves you so much, He gives you the opportunity to make the choice. Right? You have the choice to be pure. Yes, indeed. We always have a choice. I hope you enjoyed today's lesson on the mystery of marriage along with the different types of sexual sin. We are going to learn the first trigger of the sex spiral. We're going to learn what a trigger is and what you can do when you're triggered with lust. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. My name is Dustin Daniels, and you can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can write this show on iTunes. You can email me your questions. Go to DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and look forward to our time.
Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is In the Beginning, Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So then, reading Genesis' first few chapters immediately points us to the first few chapters of Matthew. So turn over there with me to Matthew chapter 4, where we read the story about how the Redeemer comes. This is one of the things I love most about reading different parts of Scripture on the same day is because you see how it all connects together. God promises a Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3. and Matthew chapter 3, that Redeemer comes on the scene saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The King is here. Matthew 1, he's born. Matthew 2, he's worshipped by wise men from the nations. Matthew chapter 3 is when John the Baptist proclaims in Matthew chapter 4, he's tempted, begins proclaiming the gospel. When we get to verse 18, listen to what it says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he, he's Jesus here, said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So see it. Beginning of the Old Testament, we're created to enjoy God's grace in relationship with him, extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. If that's really the purpose of our lives from the very beginning, you'd think it'd still be the purpose of our lives when we get to Matthew chapter 4. And so we come to the beginning of the New Testament and we see the exact same thing. Matthew 4.19, follow me. We have been called to be disciples of Jesus. We have been invited into a relationship with God through Jesus. By his grace, these four fishermen by the sea, Jesus initiates relationship with them. He comes up to them. He doesn't say, follow this path, follow these rules, follow these regulations. He says, follow me. Enter into relationship with me. And what does that mean? What does it mean to enter into relationship with Jesus, to follow him? Well, fundamentally, it means to turn from our sin and ourselves. Matthew four seventeen, right before what we just read, to repent, to turn away from our sin and ourselves. Obviously, to turn from rejecting God's word and rebelling against God's authority, to turn from our sin. And part of that is fundamentally that involves turning from ourselves. You think about these men, what they were leaving behind at this point. Comfort, careers for a time, possession, positions, family, leaving behind their father, their future. They're leaving behind themselves. And it, and it makes sense. If the essence of sin is turning from God to ourselves, then the essence of salvation is turning from ourselves to God. So to follow Jesus is to turn from your sin and yourself and to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. To trust in Jesus as the only one who can reconcile us to God and to trust in Jesus as the only one who has the rightful reign over our lives. Again, sin is rebellion against God's authority. So what does salvation involve? Salvation involves submission to God's authority. That's not a necessarily popular word, submission, but connect the dots here. Connect this with joy. Where? How are you in your life going to be most satisfied? 
The answer is in submission to the one who created you, to the one who designed you, the one who knows you better than you know yourself and knows what you need better than you know what you need. So this is not just salvation through submission. This is satisfaction through submission to Christ. Saying, it's not this person or that possession or this pursuit or that pleasure that's going to bring me satisfaction. It's you that are going to satisfy my soul. So I'm trusting you as Savior, as the one who can reconcile me to God, and as Lord, as the one who has rightful reign over me for my salvation and for my satisfaction. It's almost, it almost sounds selfish, doesn't it? Come to Christ for your own sake and for God's sake. Together, your joy, his glory. And it's not just satisfaction for our sake. It's satisfaction for others' sake. So we've been called to be disciples of Jesus and we've been commissioned to make disciples of Jesus. Come follow me and I will make you in the fishers of men. Just like what we saw in the Old Testament. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. So Jesus from the very beginning makes clear this is what he's commissioning his disciples to do, to go, to go and to proclaim God's grace for other salvation in Christ. That's why he says, Fishers of men. This is the picture he's giving us. He's not saying they're going to fish for men all over the lake. That would be weird. He was telling them from the start that they'd be spreading the gospel all over the world. This is what he was commissioning them to do from the very beginning. Not just a few of them. This is what fundamentally was involved in following Christ, was fishing for men, was proclaiming the grace of God for other salvation in Christ. That's why at the end of this book, we see what we say every Worship gathering when we close. Go, make disciples of all nations. You just told these same disciples. Go and proclaim God's grace for other salvation in Christ. And it makes sense. When you're glad in God, you tell others how they can be glad in God. That's why Psalm 67 says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. A people who are satisfied in God will proclaim God for other satisfaction. This is, when we think about our neighbors, we think about our coworkers who don't know Christ, we have the best news in all the world to tell them. The message we proclaim is you can be glad in God through Christ. There's no better news in the world. That news is worth laying down your life to proclaim, losing your life to proclaim. To the, your neighbors, to the nations. Proclaim God's grace for others' salvation in Christ. And then, follow this, as we do, we will spread God's glory through the multiplication of the church. Multiply. We'll multiply. The church, this picture, the body of Christ in the world, will multiply the beauty of Christ all over the world. When we are making disciples, inevitably we will multiply churches. We talk about that all the time. The inevitable result of making disciples is multiplying churches. I mean, think about our brothers and sisters in Cuba, one church, planted 60 other churches. You go to one of these other churches, they, that church planted 25 other churches, like just spreading, multiplying, like wildfire. We, we heard in December, Remind ourselves about our brothers and sisters we partnered together with in, in India. One church in one village a few years ago, a few years later, 350 churches in 350 different villages. And you're multiplying. Making disciples, multiplying the church. And so this is the question I've been wrestling with ever since I got back from Asia in October in particular. What does this look like here? I don't want to just see this over there, read about it over there, and tell you about it over there. I want to experience this here. The multiplication of the church. And it's, it's simple when you think about it. Like if, if we, if we all in this room today, over the next year, obeyed Jesus, if we made disciples, which is the will of God for our lives, like you don't have to wait for a vision or a tingly feeling to go down your spine or anything like that. It's the will of God. For you to, to make disciple the next year, to lead someone else to become a follower of Christ. That's, that's the, that's the will of God. So if, if, we were, if, we were, if we were all doing that, what if we all did that? Like a year from now, we have twice as many people. We have problems. And where would we put them all? Just unless the Lord gives a really clear vision, 
we're not building a 10,000 seat auditorium. And even if there's a vision, I'm going to doubt where the vision's coming from for a second. But then we can, we can pray through. Anyway, I don't want to put any limits on a blank check. So. But if we're actually making disciples, then we're going to have to multiply churches. Which means that many of us, many of us, if we're obeying Christ, are going, going to have to leave here and multiply into places all around Birmingham as we're making disciples. Which begs the question, do we want to make disciples? Are we willing to risk that? I hope we are. Changes everything. And this is where we realize Jesus has not commissioned us to come be baptized and sit in one location for the rest of our Christian lives. He's commanded us to go and make disciples of the nations, which means we need to fundamentally think about, rethink in some ways, practical ways, the way we understand, perceive the church. What does this look like? Elders and I fasting and praying. Okay, what does multiplication look like? The church of Brook Hills. This is what I want to invite all of us to think through in the coming days. To pray through. God, we want to be a part of multiplication of the gospel and church here. And so much to pray about there. But it all comes back to each one of our lives. So it's not just big pictures. It's you right in your seat. It's every member of this church. You have been created right where you're sitting to enjoy God's grace in a relationship with him, to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. You have been called to be a disciple of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. You've been commissioned by Jesus himself to make disciples. So how are you going to do that in your life? That's what I want to ask every member of this church. This is nobody on the sidelines, everybody involved, no, no spectators in the kingdom of God. I want to challenge you to take the questions that I'm about to run through to spend time praying through and answering them. So these are the questions I want to encourage you to ask. One, how will I fill my mind with truth? How will I fill my mind with truth? So the life of a disciple is the life of a learner. We want to learn from Christ. What it means to be a disciple of Christ. So we ask questions like, how will I read God's word? How will I read God's word and how will I memorize God's word? Now, obviously, this is where this Bible reading plan comes in. So I want to encourage you to join in, be a part of that. So here's the encouragement, just to hit some of the high points here. Find a quiet place to be alone with God. All you need is a Bible and a way to record your thoughts. So if you're expecting God to speak, I think it'd be good to write down what God says. So as you're learning from the Word, you want to write that down. As you begin, pause to praise God, express your desire to know Him more, Open your Bible, ask Him to teach, correct, train you in righteousness. What 2 Timothy 3.16 says the purpose of God's Word is. Make sure that this time does not become mechanical or monotonous. Focus on being with God, engaging in His Word, responding to His Spirit. What we read about in Psalm 63. So start by reading. Typically, you'll read two chapters of Scripture each day. Either way, read each chapter slowly, carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully, humbly, and joyfully. As you read, look for verses you may want to memorize and begin memorizing. Also, periodically review verses you may already have memorized. So as you're reading through, maybe make it a goal. One verse a week or one verse every couple of weeks. That when you see a verse, oh, that, I, need, I want to memorize that verse. Or maybe, maybe longer as you work toward memorization, but just start simple and commit to memorize one of the verses that you read. Then examine. So what do you do when you just read the Bible and, okay, I read, I guess that was it. Or, or how can you understand what God's Word is saying? Examine. After you read the Bible, spend time reflecting on what it says and means. Ask the following questions. Write down some of your thoughts in response. You don't necessarily have to answer every question. This is not a checklist, okay? You turn this in because you got to get all the answers right. Write down, all right, what's happening in this passage? What words, phrases, ideas seem particularly important? What does this text teach you about the gospel? So think about gospel threads, character of God. What does this text teach you about God? What does this text teach you about man? What does this text teach you about who Christ is and why we need him? What does this text teach you about trusting and following Christ? What does this text teach you about the hope of heaven or the horror of hell? So what does this text teach us about the, the gospel? So ask those kind of questions, then apply. After examining the word, apply it to your life. Ask the following questions based upon the text and write down your thoughts and response. Again, you don't have to answer every question, but when you read through a text, just ask, okay, is there sin this text is exposing that I need to repent of and avoid? What truths do I need to believe here? Maybe some that I already believe. Maybe that it's some that I haven't. What commands do I need to obey? What do I need to give up? What do I need to stop doing, start doing? What do I need to continue doing? What principles need to change the way I think, speak, act? How am I going to implement that change? 
What relationships do I need to establish, strengthen, or change as a result of this word? By the power of God's spirit, what can I do today to apply God's word to my life? So don't just hear the word. That's the most foolish thing we could do is to hear the word, James 1. Don't just hear the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So we want to think through intentionally. Okay, how can I take what I've read and put it into practice in my life? Pray according to your examination, application of the text. So as you're praying, this is where my Bible study just, I mean, just all throughout just turns into prayer. I'm even writing out prayers to God, asking God to change my heart, my mind, my attitudes, actions, relationships based on what I'm seeing in the word. Let that specific praying lead you more generally to praise, worship God for who he is, to repent, confess your sin, acknowledge your need for Jesus, ask, intercede for particular needs in your life and others' lives, yield, surrender your life to follow Jesus wherever, however he leads you. That acronym PRAY, how can I help, help you think through how to pray and then conclude your time alone with God by committing to share what he's taught with you, at least with one other person. This is not just for you, it's for others. Specifically pray through your schedule for the day, if you're in the morning or the following day, if you're spending that time at night. Asking the Lord to direct you by his spirit in everything you think, say, and do. Finally, ask the Lord for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Ask him for courage to obey and be ready to take advantage of the opportunities that, that he provides. And so this is something, hopefully, that will serve you when you think about, all right, I sit down with the Bible and something to write with, what do I do? I hope this will help. But the whole point is, okay, time alone with God. I want to make the most of it. And so this is a guy that's intended to help you toward that end. Again, we're going to dive in and even walk through some of these things, how to think through some of these things in the weeks to come. But I wanted to go ahead and, and get this to you today as we're starting this, this Bible reading plan. So how will I read God's word, how will I memorize God's word. Back to your, and then how will I learn God's word from others? Now again, you don't have to come up with earth-shaking revolutionary things here. This could involve, I would say, for every member of this church would necessarily involve, all right, being active and, and learning God's word in gatherings of the church for worship like this. But it could be also more than that. Small group, learning God's word from others in small group. And then other avenues. In my personal disciple-making plan, I've got inten- I want to be intentional about reading books, about listening to podcasts, doing this or that, that I know is going to help me learn God's word from others. I need that. You need that. We all, we all need that. So how will I learn God's word from others? how I fill my mind with truth. Second, now we don't want to keep it just in, in mind as we're like we're just supposed to be smarter people as a result of this. No, how will I fuel my affections for God? So the heart here, the seat of our emotions, even as I'm asking these questions and I, and I put it there on the personal worship guide, any of these things, Bible reading, praying, worshiping, sharing the gospel, they can all become mechanical, monotonous if we're not careful, which is not the point. Remember, for the love of God, we're wanting to grow an affection for God. So how are you going to stoke the fire, fuel the affection for God in this next, fuel affection for God in the next year? Ask these questions. How will I worship? So obviously, gathering together with the church on Sunday would be a priority there. So will you commit to prioritize weekly worship more than weekend sports or other weekend activities that keep you from worship? And then... Now take it down a level. Even as a, as a family, fathers, heads of households, families, even singles with friends, would you commit to gather together for family worship or daily midweek worship with your family and friends in some way? And I want to challenge every head of household, so that may be dad, that may be a husband, that may be a single mom. I want to challenge you, if you're a head of household, to consider how are you this year going to lead your family in worship. Idea of family worship is both attractive and intimidating. The thought of beginning a new pattern of worship in the home can be overwhelming for those just beginning. Basic questions that we hope will help equip you to lead your family in worship. To realize from the very beginning the importance of the family in discipleship is prominent throughout scriptures. Husbands are primarily responsible for the spiritual leadership of their wives. Parents, especially fathers, are primarily responsible for the spiritual growth of their children. We don't farm this out to programs in the church to do. It's something we do in our homes. And then we come together as the church and we help serve each other. These are huge responsibilities. But God has promised to provide everything we need to lead our families well according to his design. So as leaders in our home, critical thing to remember is that God's word must be written upon our hearts. Our faith in Christ, reliance upon his word, should be authentic, tangible, transparent. And so we want to take the initiative then for leading in our homes. You see some of the benefits of family worship. You get down, what should we do during family worship? Keep it simple. So again, we're going to talk about this more, but this is not, okay, we've got to put together a band with our kids. All right, four-year-old, you're singing lead, uh, even though you can 
You know, you only have a little bit of words. So, no. And who's going to prepare the outline and preach the sermon? Like, that's, don't, think simple. Think simple. Read a portion of the Bible together. You may read one or both the chapters that are in the daily Bible reading plan. You say, well, I already read that. It'll be good to read it a second time. It'll be good to read it together too and to help each other. What'd you learn from this? What'd you learn from that? And so that's what I would encourage you to do. Of course, you'll want to explain difficult words and concepts to children if they're present, but don't worry too much if you can't explain everything. So, so don't let your four-year-old's question that you can't answer like stump you and be like, I'm not doing family worship again because I don't have any clue. Like I get stumped all the time. And so, son, there's so many things we're gonna know in heaven and that would be one of them. So let's move on. <laughs> read, discuss, after reading the Bible together. So you think about examine and apply on the other sheet. Work through a simple process of examining what you've read. Give everybody a chance to discuss the passage and consider how it applies to everyday life. Ideally, you'll lead by example and share with your family what you learned in your time alone with God and the difference it's made. So walk through that kind of process with your family. Again, it doesn't have to be this exhaustive time. Maybe, so keep it simple. Pray. These are just ideas. Consider praying through the key points of the Bible passage you just read. Ask God to change your hearts, minds, lives, family accordingly. That specific prayer can lead to a more general time of prayer that uses those letters. Pray as a guide. You turn over to the back. Try to include everyone as you pray, even if that's on a rotating basis. You may want to keep a, a journal that enables you to keep track of prayer requests and God's answers to those requests. Then when it comes to singing, now sing, listen to music together as a faith family. As a family, if someone in the family has musical gifts, they may lead some simple songs. If no one in your family is musical, you can sing along with music from worship gatherings or listen to praise songs, discuss what they mean. There's moments in our family worship where I'll start leading a song and Heather will be like, oh, that key. Ah. And I'm like, I don't know what key means. Like, I'm just trying to sing. And so it sounds bad sometimes, but it's, in our family worship, that usually ends up with us wrestling on the floor at the end. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Memorize, choose key verses or passages to memorize together. And then you got some questions about family worship. Again, we're going to talk about this even more in the coming days. I really want to help equip you to do this, heads of household. But the best way to learn to do this is to start doing this. And, and don't put too much pressure on yourself. It's got to be this well-crafted worship gathering in your living room. Like, just, just open the Bible, read, pray, sing. You don't have to sing yet. You can wait on the singing. Like, that makes you nervous. Like, just, just keep it simple. So how are you going to do that? Particularly heads of household, how are you going to lead family worship? If it's just you and, and your wife, then how are you going to lead family worship? It's you and your kids. How are you going to do that? How are you worship? How will I pray? So what's going to be your time? What's going to be your place where you go in your room, you close the door and you pray to your father who's unseen? Language from Matthew 6. I exhort you, set aside a time and a place. That one practice will utterly revolutionize your life. If you set aside a time and a place to just be with God. How will I pray? How will I fast? So we're going to fast together again once a quarter as a church. Then over and above that, maybe you're going to commit to, to fast from a meal every week or two weeks or, or this time frame or that time frame to say, all right, more than I need food, I need God. More than I want food, I want God. How will I fast? How will I give? Some of you might think, well, how, how are you sneaking giving into this disciple making? Is this just a pastor trick? No. Like, think about giving. What, what does giving have to do with affection for God? According to Jesus, it has everything to do with affection for God. Where your treasure is, there your what will be also. Your heart will be also. Your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. Your, your heart follows your money. So how are you going to intentionally put your money where God is saying your hearts need to be? And we, we talked about this at the end of last year, just conviction about lack of obedience in, in our faith family when it comes to this. So how, how are you going to obey God when it comes to giving? How are you going to even look at the tithe, not as a, ceiling of giving but as a floor of giving what changes are you going to make in your lifestyle to make that, that possible so be intentional how am I going to give all these ways fuel affection for God then how will I share God's love as a witness in the world we've been commissioned to make disciples to lead other people to Christ so this year we want to do what we're here to do what we're on the earth to do so I challenge you to ask these questions one who who has God put in your life who has God put in your sphere of influence who doesn't know Christ I want to encourage you to write down names. Three, five, ten people who you know 
who don't know Christ, who you're going to pray for, and you're going to work to see come to Christ this year, to be intentional, then to ask, how? How am I going to be intentional about sharing the gospel with these people? What's my plan for intentionally sharing Christ with them? Even to the point of asking this next question, when? When can you specifically, even deliberately, create opportunities to share the gospel with them? Invitation to breakfast, lunch, coffee, whatever, dinner. Is there some activity, a weekend you can set aside, day you can set aside, or maybe something as simple as sending a letter, whatever it might be. I was going through, and it's just pure grace of God. This is worth being intentional about it, praying, working. Then... How will I show God's love as a member of the church? I want to ask you to, I encourage you to ask two specific questions here. First, where, meaning if you're not already a member of a church, to become a member of a church, whether that's here or somewhere else. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians disconnected from a local body of believers, a membership in a local body of believers. So for where, you're going to be a member of church here or somewhere, wherever you can most effectively make disciples of all nations in a local church. And then, but even within that church, we, we all know in this room, it's easy. I mean, you can just come, you can be a member of the church, come here and worship, then go out and not know anybody, not be encouraging other, building other people up in their relationship with Christ, not being accountable to other people in their relationship with Christ. So get plugged in, if you're a member here, to a small group where you're sharing life and making disciples with other men and women. And so if you're not a part of a small group, I'm encouraging the lobby out there, just immediately beginning of this year, get connected to a, to a small group. So where and then what? What are the specific ways you're going to serve the brothers and sisters around you? So this is for your good and for others' good that you're committed to a member of a church. So what's church membership going to look like in action for the sake of other brothers and sisters around you? Then two more questions. One, how will I spread God's glory among all peoples? So all of us have been commissioned to make disciples of all nations, not just the extraordinary missionaries, but everyday disciples. We are making disciples of all nations. So what does that mean we do? It means we pray for the nations. How am I going to pray for the nations? We have the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing around the world from our knees on a daily basis. So whether you use something like Operation World or this section says pray for our lives, pray for our city, and pray for our world. So this is intentionally there as a guide every week to help you think through, okay, how can I be intentional in prayer for needs beyond me, my family, and the city, and, and the nations? How am I going to pray for the nations? How am I going to give to the nations? Again, there might be overlap in some of these questions, but intentionally think through. Okay, and giving to the church, obviously that's a part of giving to the nations because we as a church are giving to the nations. Are there any things God is calling you to do over and above that to give to the glory of Christ, spread the gospel among the nations. And how will I go to the nations? To ask the question, is God leading you to spend a short-term trip, a week or two of your life this year, going into another context for the spread of the gospel there? To ask him that, to seek out possibilities, and to discern whether or not he's leading you to do that. How will I go to the nations? And then finally, much simpler question, how will I make disciple makers among a few people? So you think about it. Jesus, more than anybody else who ever lived on the earth, was most passionate about his Father's glory extending to the ends of the earth. So what did he do? He poured himself into a few people. So how can you do that this year? Think through these questions. How will I bring them in? So who are the one, two, three, four people that God's put in your life in your sphere of influence that you can lead to make disciples this year? That you can invite to spend intentional time with you during, during this year for the express purpose of growing in Christ together and then ask how I'm going to teach them to obey. So what's involved in disciple-making? We say it every week. Teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded us. How am I going to help them learn God's word and learn to obey God's word? Along the way, how am I going to model obedience for them? I put this here just to remind you, this is not just who you're going to have a Bible study with. It's who you're going to share life with and show what it means to follow Christ. When it comes to this point in my personal Sabbath-making plan, I've got just different things that I want to do in my own life, even commitments to purity in this or that area, because, yes, I want to be pure, but I also want to show others what it looks like to, to follow Christ. I know that other people are looking to me to see what it looks like to follow Christ. And that's not just because I'm a pastor. That's for every follower of Christ in this room. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Philippians 4.9, whatever you've seen, learned, heard from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So we have the responsibility of showing other people how to follow Christ, modeling obedience. And then how will I send them out? The goal is to make disciple makers, to spend our lives multiplying the gospel in ways that we're equipping, empowering, mobilizing people around us to make disciples. So those are six overall questions. I don't think they're necessarily exhaustive, but I do think they're, they're pretty essential. So I want to challenge every member of the church to, to ask, answer them together. So no spectators, nobody on the sidelines. 
Let's not just hear the word, let's do it. Let's experience the purpose for which God has created us and give ourselves the mission to which he's commissioned us. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.